Good evening, Crypt Keepers, and welcome to another special episode of Cryptique. Tonight, we will be ushering in winter with a Native American folklore tale. But first, I gotta say what's up to a man who has reincarnation instant breakfast every morning. Ryan, what's up? Not a whole lot. Recovering from my murder mystery last night, the reincarnation helped this morning. Nice. Did you win the contest to solve the crime? No, I had no idea. Hmm. It was uh, it was my mom. Your mom was the murderer, or your mom? My, got the... <laughs> my no, my my character, my character's mother, played by my buddy's wife, is the one who who done did the murder. Hmm. And I had no idea. I don't think she knew. Well, I mean, I know she didn't know because you don't find out in those things until partway through. But. What a horrible yeah. thing to find out about yourself. By the way, I when you love, were blacked out earlier, you killed somebody. <laughs> I love being the killer in murder mystery parties. We do at least one a year. <clears throat> and I love opening the envelope and it's like, you're the killer. I'm like, fuck yes. I get to try to mislead people for the next like three hours while we're trying to have dinner and drinks. And <laughs> That's awesome. Sounds like fun. It is pretty fun. All right. Well, you want to tell them what they need to know, or you want me to do it tonight? Uh, I'll just do it. I'll do a simple okay. version. Since right. I realized when you asked me to do it in person how repetitive that is for everybody. If you guys <laughs> want to help us out, the best way to do it really is to just share it with somebody you think will like it. Spreading my mouth is the best way, and we appreciate it. And if you have comments, questions, concerns, something you want to hear, something you want to tell us, something you want to request... Let us know at crypticpodcast at gmail.com and check out our merch at crypticpodcaststore.com. And otherwise, we're on pretty much all the socials. Yep, they'll all be in the notes. So with that, we're talking about ushering in winter, a time of famine, a time of starvation, a time of freezing cold winds that chill you to the bone. What are we talking about tonight? We are venturing into the chilling realms of Native American folklore to unravel the legend of the Wendigo. A creature of the night, a harbinger of death, and a symbol of insatiable greed. The Wendigo has haunted the nightmares of indigenous peoples of the Great Lakes and the forests of Canada for centuries. Originating from the lore of the Algonquin-speaking tribes, the Wendigo is often depicted as a malevolent spirit or a monstrous creature that was once human, but transformed by a cursed hunger that can never be sated. This sinister entity roams the icy wilderness, its heart as cold as the bitter winds that howl through the barren trees, ever in search of human flesh to devour. Yet with every meal, its hunger grows, a cruel irony that ensures the Wendigo is eternally tormented by an unyielding hunger. Mm-hmm. And you'll have to forgive our uh, dramatic flair today. Um, this this is very much an end of Halloween kind of episode. Yeah. <laughs> so we got to have a little bit of fun with it. For sure. The Wendigo isn't just a frightful creature of the ancient past. It's a dark mirror reflecting the perils of unrestrained desire and the horrifying lengths one might go to when consumed by desperate hunger. The Algonquin language family is one of the most extensive Native American language groups, spread across a vast stretch from New England, across the Great Lakes, and into the central regions of Canada. 
Each of these cultures, though distinct, share eerie tales of the Wendigo. And I don't think I used the word enigmatic one time. Oh, we'll find out. When I was when I was taking any notes or anything. I don't I don't think I <laughs> I don't think I ran across it once or used it myself once. Uh, <laughs> anyway, we'll they see. share tales of the Wendigo, a dark spirit that emerges from the depths of the cruel winter to haunt the living. The legend of the Wendigo is particularly entrenched within the folklore of the bunch of names I'm going to pronounce wrong. Ojibwe. 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 Oh, do you want to just pronounce these? Well, we'll both be wrong together then. The Saltu, the Cree, the Naskapi, <laughs> and the Innu community. <laughs> <laughs> Through generations, these tribes have whispered tales of this monstrous entity, each account adding a layer to the narrative that has come to form the Wendigo we fear today. The Wendigo is often described as a giant, a skeletal creature with a heart of ice, literally. Its Mm. eyes hollow with an insatiable hunger that is as boundless as the icy wilderness it roams. The narrative of the Wendigo serves as a grim reminder of the harsh realities the indigenous peoples faced during the bitter winters, like you were talking about earlier, where the food Mm. became scarce and the biting cold could drive one to the brink of despair. The Wendigo was a manifestation of that despair. A form taken by those who, overtaken by hunger, committed the unthinkable act of cannibalism. Once transformed, they roamed the wilderness, a grotesque embodiment of hunger and cold, forever cursed to crave the flesh of man. The Wendigo isn't merely a tale to chill the bones on a cold night, though. It is a narrative deeply woven into the cultural fabric, a grim reminder of the frailty of human morals under the strain of survival, and a stark warning against the perils of greed and the destruction it begets. Pretty scary stuff. This creature, born out of desperation and sustained by insatiable hunger, stands as a dark testament to the malevolent spirits believed to lurk in the shadowy corners of the natural world, waiting to prey on the weaknesses of human hearts. Central to the Wendigo legend is its frightful association with cannibalism, Within the harsh realities of severe winters and scarce resources, the indigenous tribes faced grim choices. The Wendigo emerged from these tales of desperation, embodying the terrifying act of consuming another human being to stave off death's cold grasp. I like that one. (laughs) The stories tell of individuals, overpowered by hunger and fear, committing the unspeakable act of cannibalism, only to be transformed into Wendigos, monstrous embodiments of their dark deeds. Each tale of the Wendigo paints a gruesome picture. The Wendigo's appearance is as haunting as the axe that birth it. Desiccated skin stretched taut over gaunt bones, a ghastly reflection of the very starvation that drives its curse. Yet, the Wendigo is not just a creature of flesh and bone. It's a malevolent spirit heralded by a sudden, chilling wind or a distant eerie howl that sends shivers down the spine of those who hear it. The Wendigo whispers through the trees, its voice a hollow echo that promises death to those who dare venture into its frozen domain. It's a master of auditory horror, with each crackling step on the icy ground, each howl through the barren trees serving as a grim reminder of the dark spirits believed to haunt the wilderness. The Wendigo's curse isn't only a physical transformation, but a spiritual condemnation, 
a journey into a realm of existence where the line between man and monster blurs, where the cry of the desperate morphs into the howl of the Wendigo. The folklore of the Wendigo also serves as a broader metaphor for the destructive power of insatiable desire, a reflection on the darker aspects of human nature and the horrors that may lurk within when faced with the abyss of desperation. We'll find out more after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. What are we jumping into next? Now we're going to talk more about the origins and sort of symbolism of the Wendigo. My favorite. Because we've seen it's, you know, it's not, there's a general description, but it tends to vary some of its characteristics depending on the context. So, yeah, it's not exactly, uh, it's not a Bigfoot, doesn't have all the same rules and appearances. (laughs) Yeah. Stepping back in time, the legend of the Wendigo finds its roots deeply embedded within the Algonquin-speaking Native American tribes, as we've mentioned before. These tribes share their homeland with the Wendigo across the East Coast forests of Canada, the Great Plains, and the Great Lakes region of the United States and Canada. The Wendigo is a creature of significant cultural and spiritual import to these communities. It's not just a tale to frighten children or share around campfires under a moonlit night. The Wendigo represents a complex interplay of social, environmental, and spiritual forces. It serves as a reminder of the harsh realities faced by the tribes during brutal winters, where the scarcity of food could drive individuals to the edge of humanity. In their traditions, the Wendigo is often portrayed, similarly to how we said before, as a giant. Its form a grotesque parody of a human, gaunt to the point of emaciation. It's a creature of insatiable hunger, its heart a block of ice. This is a being that carries the chill of death, its presence announced by a foul stench or a sudden drop in temperature. The narratives often carry a deeper moral lesson about the dangers of selfishness, greed, and the disconnection from community and nature. Kind of like yokai, really. Yeah. The Wendigo is not just a creature, but a symbolic representation of the darkness that can envelop individuals or communities, leading to devastation and death. Moreover, the Wendigo legend touches upon the profound respect these tribes have for the natural world, a respect forged from a life lived in close harmony with the land and its spirits. The Wendigo serves as a dark counterpoint, a harrowing tale of what happens when this harmony is disrupted, when the bonds of community fray, and when individuals succumb to the darkest aspects of survival at any cost. Among the Assiniboine, the Cree, In the Ojibwe, a satirical ceremonial dance is sometimes performed during times of famine to reinforce the seriousness of the Wendigo taboo. The ceremony known as (laughs) Wendigo Consumen... (laughs) It sounds like a German uh, dude that like ran the concentration camps or something. (laughs) Wendigo... Hans him a win. That is what it is called. <laughs> the ceremony was performed during times of famine and involved wearing masks and dancing backwards around a drum. 
The last known Wendigo ceremony conducted in the United States was at Lake Wendigo of Star Island of Cass Lake within the Leech Lake Indian Reservation in northern Minnesota. Still, the Wendigo's howl resonates through the annals of Native American folklore, a chilling echo of a time when survival was a stark struggle against the harsh whims of nature, and when the darkness within could manifest into a monstrous reality. Mm. Now, there are a few symbolic origins that we're going to go over, so I think we could just do those. <clears throat> really in a true embodiment of winter. I mean, it's, you know, we'll cover some real-life Wendigo cases, but yeah, let's just jump into this. Greed and excess. At its core, the Wendigo myth is a stark admonition against the perils of greed and excess. The creature's relentless pursuit for more, even at the expense of others, serves as a grim metaphor for the destructive potential of unchecked desire. It embodies the dark consequences that ensue when individuals or communities are taken by an insatiable appetite for more, be it food, wealth, power, or other material gains. The ancient narrative resonates through time. Its cautionary tale is relevant today amidst modern-day concerns of consumerism, exploitation, and environmental degradation. And I think that's saying that pretty much everybody in government is a Wendigo. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I was... uh... She honestly, she had to have ingested some glitter or something because her her costume involved. She was a lot lizard. That yeah. was basically her character for the murder mystery. Mm-hmm. So I'm blaming some of it on the glitter in the outfit she had to wear. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but she was laying in bed and watching TV, and she was watching this Pete Holmes comedy special. Okay, and he's talking about like just how dumb some of the stuff people get excited for is. Mm-hmm. He was making fun of like New Year's. Mm-hmm. Like thousands of people go outside in the cold and shiver and count down eight, nine, seven. And he was like, we deserve whatever the shadow government does to us. Hmm. He's like, they're probably all sitting in their like underground bunkers. Like we'll, we'll tell them what we're doing and they still won't revolt. Right. Yeah. Well, they're just hanging out in their UFOs you know, mm-hmm. hidden within the clouds, laughing at us. All right. Winter's harshness, yes. which we've already pretty much touched on. It's a, uh, I mean, you could almost imagine the Wendigo being part of, like, the Night King's army in Game of Thrones. But the Wendigo is intricately tied to the severe winters that characterize the regions where the legend originates, which tend to be around the Great Lakes and pretty far north, so very cold. Its association with coldness, both literal and metaphorical, mirrors the merciless nature of a harsh winter that can drive individuals to the brink. The Wendigo is often portrayed as emaciated, its form a grotesque reflection of starvation and the desperate, often morally reprehensible acts individuals might resort to for survival. The creature's icy heart, an emblem of death and the cold void of inhumanity, further ties the Wendigo to the merciless grasp of winter. And it's really a perfect representation of, you know, famine and and just Mm-hmm. freezing cold ice everywhere but as far as consumption goes uh this this is just what the wendigo eats right i mean it's consumption in both a consumerism kind of way a greed way and uh okay. and an eating way yeah 
Okay. The theme of consumption is central to the Wendigo myth. The creature's endless hunger is a grotesque exaggeration of the act of consumption, turned monstrous and malevolent. It serves to challenge the listeners, urging them to reflect on their actions and the impact of their desires on the community and the natural world. The Wendigo's cannibalistic tendencies are the darkest reflection of consumption, a portrayal of devouring one's kin in a literal and metaphorical sense, offering a haunting critique of self-destructive behaviors that stem from unbridled consumption. The Wendigo's symbolism is a complex interplay of cultural values, moral lessons, and environmental realities. It's a chilling narrative woven into the fabric of the communities from where it originates, a tale that challenges individuals to reflect on their actions, the nature of desire, and the delicate balance between survival and moral integrity amidst the harsh, often unforgiving clasp of winter. It can be used to describe a ton of different things. And, you know, we, we all, I think, have a little Wendigo in us because we're all like, oh, well, I don't need another jacket, but I really like that one. I'm going to grab that one. And eh, yeah, you know, I, I got a, a rotisserie chicken and had a couple pieces out of it and then just threw it away and had something else or, or whatever. It's just kind of a, it's not just consumption, it's greed and wastefulness. Yeah. Like my iPhone 13 is fine and pretty much the same as the iPhone 15, but I'm going to go ahead and trade this one in and it's going to be thrown out and wasted and, or whatever. Those are the kind of things I feel like I see, like people who buy cars all the time, which I used to be guilty of, or phones all the time, which I also used to be guilty of. I'm trying to stick with the same things that I have for longer because I realize how how much of a problem it is and how normalized it's been. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that we should be pointing out to people when they have a problem, but maybe we should. Yeah, I mean, you know, we did the, uh, this is going to come out, you know, a few weeks after the zombie road tour that we did. But uh, one of the gentlemen that showed up was walking along the trail with us and just picking up bottles and stuff like that to recycle. And that's something we can all do to try and fight this. But, you know, I see a lot of it with appliances because appliances just don't last anymore. And every, you know, three or four or five years, you have to get a new refrigerator. Well, that takes up a lot of space and landfills and, you know, whatever kind of dangerous chemicals leak out into the ground. And, you know, same with ovens and microwave and just these huge things that are super expensive that we go through so quickly because they're made like garbage. So you have to go buy a new one. There's Wendigos everywhere. And I'm talking metaphorical, but they're everywhere. But yeah, a Wendigo is basically the CEO of every major company. (laughs) Apple, Wendigo, Samsung, Wendigo, like my friend who had a $800 dryer that had like one bearing that went out, but the whole thing is assembled as one piece and you can't remove that bearing. So she had to buy an entirely new machine. Wendigo. 
All right, moving on. Tell us about Wendigo psychosis and some historical accounts. Wendigo psychosis is a term that has emerged from the depths of Wendigo lore, encapsulating a horrifying psychological condition. I don't know why I'm laughing at that. I just made myself laugh. Well, you pop, dude. You're like, it emerged from the depths. All right. Yeah. You want me to do it again? <laughs> no, no, I like it. All right. This psychosis is characterized by a deep-seated fear of becoming a cannibal and an insatiable desire for human flesh. The narratives surrounding Wendigo psychosis are not merely tales of terror, but have historical accounts. In accounts of retroactively diagnosed Wendigo psychosis, it has been reported that humans became possessed by the Wendigo spirit after being in a situation of needing food and having no other choice besides cannibalism. This is in contrast to the the psychosis that just drives you to do it. So anyway, one of these retroactively diagnosed cases, in 1661, the Jesuit relations reported, What caused us greater concern was the news that met us upon entering the lake, namely that the men deputed by our conductor for the purpose of summoning the nations to the North Sea and assigning them a rendezvous where they were to await our coming had met their death the previous winter in a very strange manner. Those poor men, according to the report given us, were seized with an ailment unknown to us, but not very unusual among the people we were seeking. They are afflicted with neither lunacy, hypochondria, nor frenzy but have a combination of all these species of disease, which affects their imaginations and causes them a more than canine hunger. This makes them so ravenous for human flesh that they pounce upon women, children, and even upon men, like veritable werewolves, and devour them voraciously without being able to appease or glut their appetite, ever seeking fresh prey, and the more greedily, the more they eat." This ailment attacked our deputies, and as death is the sole remedy among those simple people for checking such acts of murder, they were slain in order to stay the course of their madness. So that all was a quoted story. If they thought you were a Wendigo, you died. But we'll get into some more uh, more events, I guess. I was going to say some more positive things, but... No, it looks like it's all doom and gloom. (laughs) Yeah, there's not a lot of uh, positivity in the Wendigo space. Historical instances of Wendigo psychosis reveal a distressing facet of human psychology when pushed to extreme conditions. One of the most notorious cases is that of Swift Runner, a Plains Cree trapper, who in the winter of 1878 succumbed to cannibalism, killing and eating his family which was his wife and five kids, despite being just 25 miles away from emergency food supplies at a Hudson's Bay company post. And before we say any more about that, we're talking about 1875. So when you say being just 25 miles, well, 25 miles a is way. a lot. Even even if uh, you had a dog sled, 25 miles would be a, a quite a journey when it's freezing cold and snowing and three feet of snow. So it's not, it's not like us just hopping in our car and driving 25 miles. You know, it takes us a half hour for them or for Swift runner. It would have been probably multiple days at least, but you would think like, well, I'm going to try that. 
And if I die, then I die, but not, eh, it seems, seems like a rough journey. I'm just going to eat my family. (laughs) Well, either way, his actions were seen as being not born out of desperation, but a manifestation of Wendigo psychosis due to the presence of a pathological craving for human flesh. Another account comes from the tale of Jack Fiddler, an Oji Cree chief and medicine man reputed for his ability to defeat Wendigos. Mm-hmm. In some cases, this entailed killing people with Wendigo psychosis. Like we read in the earlier report, that's, mm-hmm. that's kind of the way they deal with them. As a result, in 1907, Fiddler and his brother Joseph were arrested by the Canadian authorities for homicide. His traditional practices to combat Wendigo psychosis led to a collision with colonial law. After their arrest, Jack committed suicide, but Joseph was tried and sentenced to life in prison. And when I first heard this story, real quick, yeah. when I first heard this story, I was like, man, I could see, you know, especially somebody who's used to being free and roaming the plains wherever they want and, you know, leading this life that's so close to nature and just saying like, well, I'm not going to live in prison. Fuck that. But then we hear what really happened and it's like, oh, maybe you should have held on for a little while. Yeah. Yeah. So Jack was the one who killed himself. He was the one that was the primary practitioner. And his brother Joseph was the one that was sentenced to life in prison. But he was ultimately granted a pardon, but died only three days after being put in jail and before receiving the news. The discourse surrounding Wendigo psychosis didn't end with these episodes. It sparked a fervent debate among Western ethnographers, psychologists, and anthropologists in the 1980s. The contention was whether Wendigo psychosis was a fabrication or a factual historical phenomenon. This debate showcased the tension between indigenous knowledge and Western scientific paradigms, often with the latter attempting to pathologize or dismiss traditional beliefs. What does that mean? Pathologize. Trying to find some kind of cause for it. You know, like we were looking at the witch cases and saying it could be these, uh, like this fungus that was in the soil or whatever. They're trying to attribute some kind of cause to it like that. All right. Yeah, I knew. I just wanted to make sure you knew. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> and the listeners, and the listeners, yeah, yeah, no, they all know they're all smarter than me, so they get it. As, as, as boreal Algonquin communities came into greater contact with European ideologies and lifestyles during the 20th century, the cases of Wendigo psychosis decreased significantly, adding another layer of complexity to the discourse. So the more they're in contact with Western society, the less this happens. Interesting. In his 2004 treatise, Revenge of the Wendigo, which is a great name, on disorders mm-hmm. and treatments of the behavioral health industry in the United States and Canada that are peculiar to indigenous people, James B. Waldrum wrote, No actual cases of Wendigo psychosis have ever been studied. And Lou Murano's scathing critique in 1985 should have killed off the cannibal monster within psychiatric annals. The Wendigo, however, 
continues to seek revenge for this attempted scholarly execution by periodically duping unsuspecting passers-by, like psychiatrists, into believing that Wendigo psychosis not only exists, but that a psychiatrist could conceivably encounter a patient suffering from this disorder in his or her practice today. Wendigo psychosis may well be the most perfect example of the construction of an aboriginal mental disorder by the scholarly professions, and its persistence dramatically underscores how constructions of the aboriginal by these professions have, like Frankenstein's monster, taken on a life of their own. That is written in a pretty dense way, but he's essentially saying this, we shouldn't even be talking about this anymore. Yeah, they made it up. This is gullible psychiatrists believing in this kind of thing and maybe even hoping that they're going to get one of these cases to study. It could probably be described in some of the, you know, mental illnesses that we know today, like certain types of schizophrenia. Uh, We've seen, you know, people that have been, I guess, abusing some of these uh, bath salts and stuff like Mm -hmm. that, that have, you know, attacked people. And, you know, there's even a case, if you guys want to go back and listen, we put out a Sinister Souls uh, Canadian Cannibal on August 12th, and there's a really disturbing tale of a guy that a lot of people, uh, I guess, identify as somebody that may have had this Wendigo psychosis. So go back yeah. to the August 12th episode and you can hear kind of a, a case that people, you know, related to this phenomena. The 10th revision of the International Statistical Classification of Diseases and Related Health Problems, or ICD, classifies Wendigo as a culture-specific disorder, describing it as rare historic accounts of cannibalistic obsession. Symptoms include a depression, homicidal or suicidal thoughts, and a delusional compulsive wish to eat human flesh. Some controversial new studies question the syndrome's legitimacy, claiming cases were actually a product of hostile accusations invented to justify the victim's ostracism or execution. Sounds like the witch trials. The debates around Wendigo... Yeah, it does. The debates around Wendigo psychosis, whether real or imagined, reflect broader societal and cultural dynamics at play, transcending beyond the eerie tales of cannibalistic spirits into the realm of psychiatric and anthropological analysis. So I think that there's possibly other diseases, like I was saying, that may be interpreted as this Wendigo psychosis, because we've certainly seen serial killers that like to consume at least parts of their victim. I don't know if, if it's just Wendigo psychosis that these doctors are fighting against, you know, like they don't want to admit that it's a thing, but I think it's just a name for, you know, another mental illness and they you you relate things to what you see right like we see a ufo and we're like how does that thing fly because jets have these engines and wings and helicopters you know have these blades Uh, so we compare it to the closest thing we can find which would be an airplane and with this wendigo psychosis maybe it's some form of 
you know, another psychosis or schizophrenia that presents with these symptoms. And it's just that, you know, these Native Americans, that's how they saw it. All right. Wendigo's physical appearance in traditional lore. We'll find out more after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. All right, Wendigo's physical appearance in traditional lore. The Wendigo is often described as a grotesque and terrifying entity, a twisted manifestation of the natural and supernatural. Its physical attributes are a ghastly fusion of human and monstrous elements, often described with horrific detail in the lore. Its appearance alone is said to evoke an intense, bone-chilling fear. The traditional description of the Wendigo paints a picture of a gaunt skeletal creature, its skin stretched tight over its bones, embodying starvation and death. The Ojibwe, Eastern Cree, West Main, Swampy Cree, Naskapi, and the Innu lore often portray the Wendigo as a giant, many times larger than a human being. With each act of cannibalism, the Wendigo grows in proportion to the meal it had just consumed. The Wendigo's appearance is a grotesque representation of gluttony and excess. Its emaciated form, a stark contrast to its insatiable hunger. It's often described as having a heart of ice and exuding a foul, unnatural stench or an unseasonable chill that precedes its arrival. The eyes of the Wendigo are said to be pushed deep into their sockets, echoing the hollow void of its existence. Its eerie appearance is further accentuated by its decaying ash-gray complexion and lips tattered and bloody from its cannibalistic feasts. The Wendigo is said to move with a haunting, unnatural agility, its skeletal form gliding through the icy winds of the north, its towering figure looming in the eerie silence of the cold wilderness is the epitome of terror in the tales shared across generations. A Wendigo doesn't necessarily lose the human's powers of cognition or speech, and in some depictions may clearly communicate with its prospective victims or even threaten or taunt them. A specimen of folk story collected in the early 20th century by Lottie Chickenquow Marsden, an ethnographer of the Chippewas of Rama First Nation, in which a Wendigo also exhibits tool use and ability to survive partial dismemberment, and auto-cannibalism reads, One time, long ago, a big Wendigo stole an Indian boy, but the boy was too thin, so the Wendigo couldn't eat him up right away, but he traveled with the Indian boy, waiting for him till he'd get fat. The Wendigo had a knife, and he'd cut the boy on the hand to see if he was fat enough to eat, but the boy didn't get fat. They traveled too much. One day, they came to an Indian village, and the Wendigo sent the boy to the village to get some things for him to eat. He gave the boy just so much time to get there and back. The boy told the Indians that the Wendigo was near them and showed them his hand, where the Wendigo cut him to see if he was fat enough to eat. They heard the Wendigo calling the boy. He said to the boy, Hurry up! Don't tell lies to those Indians. All of these Indians went to where the Wendigo was and cut off his legs. They then went back again to see if he was dead, but he wasn't dead. 
he was eating the juice from the inside of the bones of his legs that were cut off. The Indians asked the Wendigo if there was any fat on them. He said, you bet there is. I've eaten lots of Indians. No wonder they are fat. The Indians then killed him and cut him to pieces. This was the end of this giant Wendigo. So he can't even resist eating himself. It's yeah. pretty scary. But what do they what do they sound like? Well, the Wendigo isn't just a visual terror. Its presence is often accompanied by an array of bone-chilling sounds that enhance the horror associated with this entity. Enhance the horror sounds like a good album name for a metal band. Anyway, yeah. according to various accounts and folklore tales, the Wendigo is often heralded by gusts of bitter cold wind that howl through the desolate wilderness. This wind is described as carrying with it a symphony of haunting cries, echoing through the trees, an auditory testament to the dread the creature instills. The auditory horror doesn't stop at the eerie cries carried by the wind. Many stories recount hearing the Wendigo's ghastly howls in the distance, a sign of its approach. These howls are described as a mix of anguish and malevolent intent, encapsulating the torment of the creature and its insatiable hunger for flesh. The sound is said to freeze the blood of those who hear it, instilling a sense of impending doom. Moreover, the Wendigo's footsteps are a source of terror as well. The soft crunch of snow beneath its feet is a steady, rhythmic reminder of its relentless pursuit of its prey. The sound resonates through the silent, snow-covered landscapes, growing louder with each passing second as the Wendigo nears. The auditory terror adds a layer of palpable tension and fear to the already horrifying visual of the Wendigo. The auditory aspects are meticulously crafted within the lore to evoke a sense of dread and unease. They embody the fear of the unknown, the terror of what lurks in the dark, cold woods. The Wendigo's horrifying sounds are an intrinsic part of the legend, amplifying the fear and helping the lore to transcend generations. Remaining a compelling and terrifying narrative in the cultural psyche of the Algonquin-speaking peoples. Pretty scary. You hear these, you know, winds howling, and you can imagine, picture in your mind, you are walking in plains and mountainous terrain with three feet of snow. You you can't communicate with other people. You don't have walkie-talkies and stuff like that. And how eerie this would be especially if this was something that was ingrained in you because you know a lot of us were raised christian and we kind of associate um a lot of things with with christianity like if we saw an apparition of a woman we might you know say oh that may have maybe that was mary and you know but these guys have had this ingrained that there is a physical slash spiritual being called the Wendigo that lurks these places where you are by yourself uh, away from civilization and kind of at the mercy of nature in general. Right. And we've talked a lot about this being a symbol or a metaphor or a reminder or whatever, Mm -hmm. but it's, I mean, it is told as a physical thing, right? Like you have to be careful of this thing that is out there that will eat you, that 
will pursue you relentlessly that doesn't get full, you know? It sounds more and more like government every time we tell more about the story. <laughs> when we were when we were walking that trail, uh, mm-hmm. some of your friends were talking. I was walking behind them about what to. They're like, what? What do you? What are you supposed to do when you see a jaguar or, or whatever kind of creatures might yeah. be out there? And I was thinking of this Bill Burr thing where he's talking about being confronted with a bear or, or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And he's like, you avoid eye contact, you back up while pushing your friend forward, <laughs> that kind of right. thing. It's like, that doesn't work with the Wendigo. The Wendigo, you know, it's like Pringles. <laughs> right. He ain't going to have just one. He's going to yeah. have them all. <laughs> all right. Let's talk about its portrayal in pop culture. Mm-hmm. The Wendigo has found its way from the chilling tales of the Algonquin-speaking peoples into the broader canvas of literature and pop media morphing into various forms while often retaining its core essence of insatiable greed and horror. And what would a Wendigo be without insatiable greed and horror? It would be a yokai, be cute and funny. And one of the earliest instances of Wendigo making its entrance into non-indigenous literature was through Algernon Blackwood's 1910 novella titled The Wendigo. Blackwood's narrative was instrumental in introducing this folklore entity to a wider audience, albeit through a lens that, as noted by Joe Nazar, subtly transformed the Wendigo from a native myth into a template for depicting the Indian savage. The influence of Blackwood's depiction was profound and rippled through the horror genre, inspiring subsequent writers and artists. Notable among them were August Derleth's The Thing That Walked on the Wind and Ithaqua, which further entrenched the Wendigo in the realm of horror fiction. And I think that the Wendigo is great for horror movies, you know, a way you can sneak it in here and there, and we'll talk about one later. But when you're using it to sort of, I'm not sure exactly what the term would be, but when you're, you're basically using the Wendigo and saying, this is how Indians are that's really dangerous and and awful because you know it's like saying oh well you know people from america believe in the boogeyman so they must all be dark horrible spirits and it's like no that's it's not the case at all you're you're flipping the script man it's not fair yeah just a terrible way of uh typecasting people demonizing literally yeah that that's a much better way of putting it all right i shouldn't have even chimed in well no because you 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 made me you made me think which is what you're here to do make people think (laughs) so yeah don't you can't associate any people with a folklore that they have and saying that this describes them and unless you know it's like oh they believe that if they just kill everybody then and eat them they'll live forever or something like that it, don't use it to describe a people you can't use you know the worst example of their folklore that you don't even believe in to describe how they behave but Anyway, getting back to some pop culture, this is something that I didn't know, and surprisingly Ryan didn't know before this episode, but uh, some of these works eventually served as a muse for Stephen King, who incorporated a Wendigo-like entity in his novel, Pet Cemetery. 
In King's narrative, the Wendigo is a personification of evil, described as an ugly, grinning creature with yellow-gray eyes, ram's horns replacing ears, and white vapor emanating from its nostrils and a pointed, decaying yellow tongue. Through such portrayals, the Wendigo's terror was not only propagated, but also morphed to fit the narrative needs of contemporary horror storytelling, which is totally fine because Stephen King isn't saying this is how Native Americans act. So, yeah. <laughs> in 1973, the Wendigo character leapt into the pages of American comic books published by Marvel. This iteration, created by Steve Englehart and artist Herb Trimpe, showcased the Wendigo as a monster cursed upon those who committed acts of cannibalism, first appearing in The Incredible Hulk number 162 have you read that one i have not i'm assuming that the hulk wins he typically does but that's a lot of flesh to consume if you if you can get him to turn into the hulk and he's like you know a 700 pound creature that's a lot of flesh to eat so its cinematic portrayals have been numerous and varied films like ravenous and even the lone ranger have featured creatures inspired by the wendigo legend each with its unique spin. More recently, the 2021 film Antlers, produced by Guillermo del Toro, presented the Wendigo as a deer-like creature with a glowing heart embodying an unending hunger that transfers from one person to another. Del Toro cleverly encapsulated the Wendigo's insatiable hunger in a narrative where the more it eats, the hungrier and weaker it becomes, offering a modern-day allegory to ancient lore. Through each portrayal, be it in novels, comics, or films, the Wendigo continues to echo the ancient fears and moral tales from which it was born, while also reflecting contemporary anxieties and dark fantasy. And Del Toro has some really striking movies out there. Um, he did Pan, right? Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah, that was him. Yeah, and that beast that had the hands on its eyes, super freaky. So I haven't seen Antlers, but I'm going to put it on the list. Yeah, I haven't seen it either. I did look up uh, that Hulk issue, and apparently the Hulk is in Canada doing something and encounters a Wendigo and tries to help the person who's cursed to lift the curse. But apparently Mm -hmm. the Wendigo and the Hulk are evenly matched as far as strength nice i'm not going to spoil the 45 or whatever year old comic book but yeah there's we're not pretty sure cool the winner. hulk wins because because <laughs> he's still around for sure right at least in movies and stuff yeah. so all right we'll talk about the psychological fear and paranormal allure after a quick break Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. Tell us about the psychological fear. The legend of the Wendigo carries an aura of mystique and fear that transcends the folklore into a more psychological and paranormal realm. The personification of greed, hunger, and the harsh cold of winter makes it a compelling yet terrifying entity. The Wendigo is not just a mythical creature, but a manifestation of primal fears that resonate through the human psyche. Its association with cannibalism and its presence in desolate, cold, and unforgiving landscapes underscores a more profound fear, the fear of the unknown, the fear of what humans are capable of under desperate circumstances. 
The myth of the Wendigo taps into the fear of the wilderness and the unknown. Its legend is often used to explain the unexplainable. The eerie silences during a snowstorm, the sudden disappearance of people in the wild, or the unshakable feeling of being watched in a dense forest. These are aspects that trigger the primal fears in humans, a throwback to the times when we were not at the top of the food chain. The Wendigo serves as a reminder of our vulnerabilities, our fears, and the thin veneer of civilization that separates us from our more primal instincts. The Wendigo's legend is enriched by the chilling auditory experiences often associated with it. The terrifying cries in the night, the whispers in the wind amid the tall pines, the eerie howls that echo across the vast wilderness. They all contribute to the growing fear and legend of the Wendigo. In the silence of the night, in the heart of the wilderness, the slightest sound can send a chill down your spine. And the Wendigo's legend leverages this fear, making every whisper a potential sign of its presence. The Wendigo's lore is not just a tale, but an experience, an emotion that evokes an innate fear. It is a combination of the atmospheric, the auditory, and the visceral that makes the Wendigo a fascinating yet terrifying part of folklore, an entity that still haunts the tales and the wild places of North America. Wendigo is a symbol of modern societal issues. The Wendigo legend has transcended its traditional folklore roots as a potent symbol reflecting modern societal issues, particularly environmental degradation and corporate greed. Its essence, representing insatiable hunger and unrelenting greed, mirrors the behavior seen in some aspects of modern society. I would argue most aspects, at least here. Mm-hmm. This transformation from a mythical creature to a symbolic representation of societal issues showcases the enduring relevance and adaptability of the Wendigo legend. So what about environmental degradation? The Wendigo, traditionally associated with the harshness of winters and the unforgiving nature of wilderness, now also symbolizes the destructive path humanity might be on concerning the environment. The Wendigo's insatiable hunger is likened to the unsustainable exploitation of natural resources, where the never-ending pursuit of more leads to environmental degradation. The metaphor of the Wendigo consuming not just individuals, but the very land they live on, reflects concerns over deforestation, pollution, and other environmental issues stemming from a lack of restraint and respect for nature. The environment is something I've been thinking about a bit lately. Mm-hmm. Other than just because the weather's crazy and the world is changing. Mm -hmm. But I need to buy a new car at some point. I need a car that's not a two-seater now that I have a kid, right? Yeah. And I I had a Subaru Outback in the past, and I really liked it. Mm -hmm. I was thinking, like, well, maybe a a more modern one would be even better. And I was looking at those and the prices. And I was just looking at other vehicles in the same price range because they're all so expensive now. Yeah. And it's like you're spending twenty five, thirty thousand dollars almost no matter what, unless you're buying something older. Right. Um yeah, particularly older or you know, if you get just the right one, sometimes you you can find a deal. <laughs> you know, it's like they yeah. they used to have the Mercury Mariner, I think it was called, which was basically the Ford Escape, but with a different badge. Yeah. And they were much cheaper on the used market. You could get one a couple years old for way cheaper than an Escape because nobody knew what they were. Mm -hmm. There's stuff like that. But I was looking at 
that, and then I thought, well, for that price, you can buy like a Tesla, like a Model 3 or a Model Y used for, you know, 27 to 33 maybe. Mm-hmm. And then you're not paying for gas. And then I started kind of looking into the environmental part of that. And I remember reading articles years ago that talked about to produce the battery in an electric car puts as much mm-hmm. pollution into the atmosphere as burning like 20,000 or 30,000 gallons of gas. Yeah. And then just like the environmental impact of building the batteries, mining the materials, disposing of the batteries and the, the you know sort of lack of infrastructure, at least in the past, mm-hmm. for recycling them. It's like you're yeah. kind of screwed either way. If you use yeah. a car that runs on good old-fashioned dinosaur juice, you're polluting that way. Although cars contribute a significantly lower proportion of global pollution than people think yeah but it's still a problem and reliance on fossil fuels is still a problem but But we yeah it's like i don't know that electric cars are the solution either at least right now right right exactly and we don't know you know how many miles an average tesla will end up with because we haven't had them i mean what if they last seventy thousand miles and then fall apart Right. I mean, I've heard of as many stories. Well, I probably heard more stories of them being good over time, but I've heard stories of people who got like 40,000 miles and then they had to have the battery pack replaced. Yeah. But I've also seen plenty of people say like, oh, I've got, you know, 100,000 miles, 120,000 miles on mine and the battery's degraded by like 1%. Hmm. You know, the, Hmm. the only way to tell is to, you know, for me to, buy one and then check in with you guys in like five years yeah. and to t- tell you how it's going. But yeah, you're right. These have only been around for like 10 years ish yeah. in like, like significant numbers. Yeah. And the battery chemistry is changing all the time. Well, one of the problems with electric cars is where we get our electricity from. That's true. Yeah. If I mean our electricity, 40% of it comes from burning coal. So does coal burn worse than you know, gasoline, I would say it probably does, uh, maybe twice as bad. So you're not really, you know, saving the world when you're using basically a, I mean, it's transferring fossil fuel into electricity. So it's not like, you know, soccer moms are like, I'm saving the world. I'm, I have a, an electric car. It's like, well, look into it a little bit. Yeah. All right. Moving on to corporate greed. Similarly, the Wendigo has become an allegory for corporate greed, where the relentless pursuit of profit often comes at a high human and environmental cost. Its insatiable appetite for more is a haunting reflection of the capitalist system run amok where corporations driven by a singular focus on profit maximization can end up consuming the very resources and communities they depend on. The Wendigo in this context serves as a warning tale about the dangers of unchecked greed and the potential for self-destruction inherent in a system devoid of ethical and sustainable practices. The Wendigo's symbolism extends to broader societal critiques encompassing issues like colonization and the exploitation of indigenous peoples. 
The narrative of a creature or force consuming everything in its path resonates with the experiences of many communities facing displacement and exploitation. These modern interpretations of the Wendigo legend offer a lens through which to view and critique contemporary societal issues. They highlight how folklore can evolve and remain relevant, providing a rich tapestry of symbolism and meaning that can be drawn upon to understand and navigate the complex challenges of the modern world. In conclusion, the Wendigo legend, deeply rooted in the cultural fabric of Algonquin-speaking peoples, encapsulates a rich tapestry of fears, beliefs, and societal critiques that have transcended the bounds of folklore into modern-day media and psychological discourse. Its association with cannibalism, malevolent spirits, and the harsh realities of nature, especially the biting cold of winters, has made it a compelling subject of horror and intrigue. The evolution of the Wendigo myth from a traditional lore to a symbol of modern-day societal issues like environmental degradation and corporate greed showcases its enduring relevance. Through the lens of Wendigo psychosis, it offers a glimpse into the complex interplay between cultural beliefs and mental health, highlighting the need for a nuanced understanding in psychological and anthropological discussions. The Wendigo's presence in contemporary literature, films, and even comic books signifies its potent symbolic value in exploring human vices like greed and consumption. The various interpretations and portrayals of the Wendigo not only reflect the fears and anxieties of different eras, but also provide a creative platform for discussing broader societal issues. I could just see you at a board meeting or something and somebody's like, well, I need an increase in my budget to pay for this. And you jump up and you're like, you're a Wendigo. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I think I've worked for a few Wendigos or at least reptilians. Yeah, for sure. The Wendigo with its haunting presence and terrifying lore continues to be a riveting embodiment of the darker aspects of human nature and the potential consequences of unfettered greed and disregard for nature. Its legend invites us to reflect on our actions and the societal norms that may perpetuate destructive behaviors, thus underlining the timeless essence of this chilling folklore. The exploration of the Wendigo legend from its historical roots to its modern-day representations reveals the depth of human imagination and the enduring power of traditional lore in narrating the human experience. Or... Does it hint at a terrifying reality experienced by societies more in tune with nature and spirit and warn against genuine danger of the Wendigo curse and the creature itself? Boom. Boom. Uh, We'll get your final thoughts after a quick break. Welcome back, Crypt Keepers. All right. What are your final thoughts on this Wendigo? I think it's a really good yokai story. But it does feel like one of these stories where there has to be some real world common sort of ancestor for it. Something that caused it, you know? Yeah. We're talking about that the the Algonquin speaking tribes are where this originated, but we're talking hundreds and thousands of years. Right. You know, you're not like you may say the Great Lakes area into the Great Plains and the 
whatever these forests of Canada and all this stuff, but those are long distances, especially on foot a thousand years ago. And these are independent societies and groups of people, even though they speak similar languages that are seeing the same thing and experiencing the same thing and telling the same cautionary stories, you know, be careful because there are Wendigos out there. I mean, they, they believe it enough that they're killing people. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> they're serious about the Wendigo. So I, I mean, we're, we're talking a lot about the symbolism. Yeah. And I think that the symbolism has been used a ton as a cautionary tale or as a horror story or, you know, to scare your kids into behaving well and not being too selfish. But I'm really interested in the, the descriptions of it and the, you know, the way that we only briefly touched on it, but they, they talk about how it explains these pauses in storms or the disappearance of people or, you know, whatever these other little aspects of the winter are. Mm -hmm. It's this supernatural thing that is almost elemental itself. Yeah. It's a good way to describe it. And I really, I, I just think it's a super cool story and a really like scary creature. Nobody's having a good time. With a Wendigo. <laughs> don't go to Wendigo parties. Yeah, they're cursed. They're not having a good time. It's like, I don't know. I could see them being the new vampire. Like vampires are not supposed to be like tragic and misunderstood. They're supposed to be they're supposed to be monsters. Yeah. And that's what these things are for now. So uh, yeah. we'll see. Maybe they'll have like a teenage Wendigo romance show on the CW <laughs> at some point in the future. Oh, I'm not watching. But apparently when, you know, the natives were describing this creature, they didn't necessarily say, oh, it looks like, I mean, I think our common picture, if you think of a Wendigo, which I mean, maybe most people don't have a visualization of what a Wendigo would look like. But I think for those of us that are kind of into this, you know, type of study, I guess, uh, we picture kind of like a deer skull for a top of the head and antlers. And, you know, I don't know that that's what the natives described him as. I, I think that that's something that came along a little bit later. Yeah. And they were just like, well, they, you know, they look like really skinny, emaciated people. Well, okay. So we talked to... Dave Barnett and we talked to Jeff Seelman and they both said that, you know, spirits, they don't appear in necessarily the clothing that they died in. Like most people mm -hmm. would probably think, or the clothing at the time, they're an energy that presents themselves however it wants. So if these spirits are out there, they may be, you know, portraying their own image, projecting their own image as what these people are seeing. And it's really a spirit, you know, an evil spirit. It's not a 12 foot tall deer skull head creature. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's a lot more believable if you say, oh, it's, it can portray itself however it wants. Mm -hmm. And I've even heard stories of people that have, had either Wendigo psychosis or have actually been tormented by this Wendigo that they cough up ice 
And that's, I mean, if that's true, that's really interesting because I don't know that any kind of psychosis you could have would allow you to cough up ice. Right. Yeah, that's one of those pretty patently paranormal aspects of it. And I think that, you know, if we're taking a lesson away from this, just don't be so greedy. Everybody's greedy. Everybody. Even even people that have nothing are greedy. It's just kind yeah. of a curse on our psyche, a curse on our spirit. Is, is on greed. our society, yeah. Mm. I mean, I was starting to talk about the whole environmental thing earlier with the cars. Mm-hmm. But really, what you could do that would solve most of it, what we as a society could do is just... Scooters? Have more public transportation. You know, go back to like trolleys and more walkable communities and more densely populated cities and leave the wilderness mostly alone. But that would make less money for most people. Yeah. You know, how housing developers, they're not going to make as much money if they're building us all perfectly reasonable thousand square foot, two bed, one bath apartments mm-hmm. and trolley lines to get us around when they could be selling us four bed, three bath houses with an acre of land that we're going to waste by just mowing it and probably not doing much with it unless you have a bunch of kids or dogs. Yeah. And then when they do that, you need roads, so people have to be paid for that. Then you need cars and fuel and all these things. And it's like, as a whole society, we could solve a lot of our problems by everybody generally being less greedy. I feel like when you talk like this, people think that you're communist. You're promoting communist ideas. Really? And it's not exactly that. It's I don't think communism is the right way to go mm-hmm. simply because... It's never been terribly successful anywhere and has led to some of the greatest atrocities in the last 200 years. Agreed. But capitalism without restraint is not good either. Yeah. Like the idea that you can have, you know, if you if you had a, a mom and pop business that was running for 100 years mm-hmm. and doing fine, supporting everybody, supporting its employees, some years it makes more money than others. Mm-hmm. But if it has an IPO, all of a sudden you're going to have pressure from a board mm-hmm. to grow. You have to grow every year. You you can't, even if you have a business making a billion dollars a year, you're going to be pressured to grow. Mm-hmm. And if you don't grow, you're going to be devoured. Mm. You know, somebody else is yeah. going to come in. Hostile investors are going to come in and they're going to try to take over and either force it to be more profitable because they just want more and more, or they're going to basically break it apart and sell it to other interested parties. Yeah. And it's like, that seems like such a destructive and unsustainable way to do things. Well, it's the way that the haves just keep getting more and more, and the have-nots keep getting less and less. Yeah. Systems like this, capitalist systems, allow us to have plenty of food to feed everybody. Mm-hmm. We don't actually do it. Mm-mm. We could. <laughs> we produce enough. Like we have an abundance of certain things now, and you know, a lot of things that that were expensive are now cheap, and things that were impossible, like smartphones and video game systems, are now commonplace. But it's like you got to have a little self awareness and a little restraint. Well, I mean, you can see. All you have to do is take a drive 
to see who's all about themselves. They're the people that are sitting at a green light, finishing their text message because they don't want to drive and text. And they're like, fuck everybody behind me. I don't care if there's 30 cars in line and, you know, somebody's trying to get to the hospital. I'm going to, I'm going to do my text right now. And yeah. Or those people who slam on their brakes on the highway mm -hmm. to try to slide across two or three lanes of traffic because they realize they're about to miss their exit and they don't want to turn you know, around, go through the, yeah, they don't want to go to the next exit and do the thing where you do like, what would you do two two loops on the cloverleaf thing yeah to try to turn around which i've i've done that plenty of times i mean there there are tons of times where i'm like i'm not going to try to inconvenience everybody else or put myself and my passenger in danger right to try to make this exit it's my fault i'm just going to take an extra two minutes go yeah. a mile down get off you know get on here and then come at it from the other direction like it's fine. It's not the end of the world, but for a lot of people, it's the end of the world. You know, it yeah, it's like I but that's not the thing I want to do. Yeah. I have to do the thing that I want to do right now. Well, you get there a lot faster if you take the 2 minutes to turn around than you do, you know, when you wreck and, you know, cause three traffic fatalities. And it also pisses me off these Wendigos that, you know, I'm in a line you know, on an exit ramp or whatever, and I'm the last one in line, but they cannot be behind me. They just cannot. They have to get in front. I'm like, why? There's three car spaces here. You had to get in front of me, and there's no traffic for a mile behind me. Why was it so right. important that you had to be in front of me? Yeah, they're a bunch of Wendigos, man. Maybe that should be a... uh sticker we put out caution when to go driving <laughs> yeah but uh yeah encourage people to slap it on somebody else's car exactly so you know we talked about um how this lore is kind of spread out you know throughout the uh new england area and then into the you know forests of canada and stuff but there is another creature and it's called the Wechuge. And we're not going to get too much into it, but I mm. did want to bring it up because it is kind of related. So the Wechuge is a man-eating creature or evil spirit appearing in the, in the legends of the Athabascan people. In beaver mythology, it is said to be a person who's been possessed or overwhelmed by the power of one of the ancient giant spirit animals related to becoming too strong. So we're not going to get too much into that, but if you want to look that up, that's a cool creature too. You can find that on Wikipedia and some of these other sites, but uh, yeah, it's just kind of a similar creature. So I thought that was kind of neat, but I guess that's all we've got for you tonight. Do you want to tell them what they need to know? As always, please like, subscribe, share, rate, whatever you can do on your particular podcast platform would help us out in our battle against the algorithm and our Wendigo overlords. If you want to see what kind of stuff we're trying to sell in our own Wendigo-like pursuits, you can do so at CrypticPodcastStore.com. You can get a hold of us with whatever you want to say at CrypticPodcast.gmail.com and check us out on all of our socials to see what other stuff we've been up to. All right, that's all we've got for you tonight on Cryptique, but we do want to remind you 
Never eat human flesh, lest you turn into a Wendigo. Good evening, Crypt Keepers. 